Hi everyone, I'm Rob. You're about to listen to Two Bye Guys, but before we get underway, one more plug from my awesome podcast recording service, Zencaster. I've been using Zencaster to record Two Bye Guys ever since season three. It has made things so much better and easier for me. I do everything remotely and it sounds like we're in the same room. I can't recommend Zencaster enough. And also, in addition to recording, I'm about to switch over to Zencaster podcast hosting. So it's all going to be in one place for me. Hopefully, you will not notice any difference, but it will make things much easier for me to do it all in one. Zencaster does HD video recording. It has built-in VOIP chat and footnotes while you're recording. I don't really use that, but it sounds cool like I should. You can leave little notes for yourself. There's also a soundboard for live editing. You can add music and other sounds while you're recording. Again, it's not something I use because I edit after the fact, but if you don't want to edit after, which is a lot of work, you don't really need to with Zencaster. You can do a lot of stuff while you're recording. Zencaster has secured cloud backup, so I never lose a track. Even one time somebody's computer died while we were recording, we didn't lose anything. And the most important thing is that Zencaster has studio quality sound. It sounds like we're in the same room. It records locally, not over the internet. Now this episode, you may notice it doesn't quite sound like all our others. Not because of anything Zencaster did, it's unfortunately because my guest did not have a built-in microphone, so he had to use his AirPod microphone. And as great as Zencaster is, it cannot make the microphone inside AirPods better than it is. But still, even with that, the episode sounds great. Just wanted to note that. If you go to Zencaster.com pricing and enter promo code 2 guys, you'll get 30% off your first three months. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com slash pricing promo code to buy guys. It is time to share your story with Zencaster. Hello and welcome to Two Bi Guys. We have a very interesting episode today, some research about bisexuality and the history of the term bisexual. And joining me is Mark Wilkinson. Welcome, Mark. Hi, everybody. So Mark is a PhD candidate at Lancaster University using corpus-based critical discourse analysis to study media representation and the construction of identity and community. And I will ask him to explain what the hell that means in a minute. His research (laughs) is primarily concerned with the discursive construction of sexual identity in the mainstream British media. And his work aims to combine historical knowledge with discourse theory in an attempt to map how, when, and why certain identity formations were privileged over others resulting in concepts like the LGBT community and the deracialization of queer people in popular culture. And I came across Mark's work through Twitter. I think actually one of our listeners recommended that I look into your work. And Thank you, listener. Yeah. (laughs) And you had been tweeting about this paper you wrote on the history of the word bisexual in the British press. So we'll get into that in a minute. But welcome, Mark, uh, to Two Bye Guys. Nice to have you. Why don't you start Thank by you. telling us a little about yourself? Um, how how do you identify? Uh, and what are your pronouns? And then we'll get into the work and, and everything. 
Well, that's sort of, it's, it's kind of a loaded question, right? Because yeah. like the two kind of like They're, lead yes. into one another, right? Um, Let's just, we'll talk about this question for the whole time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'll be an entire hour of just yeah. me, <laughs> just what, how I identify. Um, yeah. So basically, I mean, yeah, this is, this is an interesting question because, and I am at risk of probably making it more complicated than it needs to be, but how I identify and, you know, as somebody who spends his entire day thinking about identity and um, identity generally, but more specifically sexual and gender identity, I'm obviously going to have a lot to say on the matter, right? So, (laughs) (laughs) So I like to think of myself in, you know, ideally I like to think of myself as like a queer leftist radical um, however, I'm just kind of plain old gay, <laughs> you know, which is not nearly as exciting. Um, you know, I am a cis man. I am in a relationship with, uh, with another cis man. Most of my uh, major relationships and sexual experiences have been with other cis men, but, and this is sort of like where it's kind of a nice segue into the work itself is that I think that, you know, mapping sexual identity and culture and history and all of these things onto, onto words, right? You know, symbols, signifiers like gay, bisexual is problematic because they have different meanings at different times in history and they might not um, necessarily fit with people's experiences, right? And we had talked about this a little bit when we were um, emailing back and forth that I was like, you know, I'm gay, but like, like I'm sort of like uncomfortable with the term and I prefer queer. And there's kind of two main reasons for that. So the first reason is, you know, that like, that, that gay is the only word that is available to describe the experience that I have, like the, the way that I live my life, right? But I've also, and like, and I came out when I was in my early to mid teens, but, you know, subsequent to that, and I was already identifying as gay and I was out to my friends and, um, and family later, a little bit later, but um, I still had sexual experiences with women, right? And not because I felt coerced to, or like I had to, or like I was denying my sexual identity. I wanted to, right? Like it was just something that I enjoyed and I did. And so does that mean that I'm bi? Well, no. Because everything, sort of most of my sexual experiences and relationships have been with men. So I think that, that, that gay is the most accurate term in this particular like historical moment and cultural moment. But it's almost like a shorthand, right? Because mm-hmm. if you explain your entire sexual history and your gender identity to every single person that asks, it's confusing. Um, right. and, and probably like a little bit too much, like an overshare. But also, I think that, you know, having, we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, you know, I spent many years living in, I'm originally from Canada, but I spent many years living and traveling in um, East Asia, and then many years living and traveling in the Middle East. And (laughs) let me tell you, like, there are many, many men in these areas who have sex with or have sexual experiences with other men and women who have sexual experiences with other women, and they would never identify as gay or even bisexual. And, you know, yeah. at least in the concept, in the at the circumstances of men, you know, it's a lot to do with, like, who is the penetrative partner, the so-called dominant partner. And I'm talking, like, like 
cis male students that I had that were like, this wasn't like, like on the download. Like this was really like, they were like almost sort of casually. I mean, this is obviously after getting to know the students, but they would sort of casually talk about having sex with men at the weekend as sort of like an alternative. Like, you know, <laughs> like we couldn't find like, you know, like X kind of restaurant. So we went for Chinese instead. Like, like it's just very like, like it was sort of like almost matter of fact, but mapping our concepts of gay and bi and lesbian, whatever, onto their experiences is just absurd because these are Western concepts and they're particular like historical and cultural concepts. And I think in terms of history as well, like similarly, if I was, you know, one of my ancestors and I was born in 12th century Scotland, like I would still be attracted to men, you know, and I would still, if I was lucky, be able to have sex with cis men as well. But I would also, to subsist off the land, have to marry, you know, a woman and I would have to have children in order to subsist off the land. And I'd probably be as happy as I am now, you know, like, because the language and the culture wouldn't have afforded me the opportunities that I have now to build a life with another man, right? Mm-hmm. So that's sort of like thinking about it in terms of like identity and like the social and cultural circumstances. Then in terms of politics, I tend to shy away from gay and drift towards queer because over the past, you know, 10 to 20 years, the connotations associated with mainstream LGBT, LGBT politics um, which is usually, but not always, sort of construed by the politics of like white, cis, middle class, non-disabled, gay men, right? Like, for instance, the fight for um, same-sex marriage, right, is is a goal which doesn't necessarily benefit everybody who would fall within like the the umbrella of the LGBT population, but also doesn't really like um, comport with my own politics as a socialist. Um, that I'm more concerned with, you know, um, like a redistribution of wealth. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that queer tends to signal a politics that is more concerned with um, building coalitions with anti-racist movements, anti-austerity politics, advocates for affordable housing. And in addition to a political commitment to like universalist principles on redistribution, also the focus on crucial issues like the murder of mostly trans women of color, murdered and missing women, girls, and two-spirit folks in Canada, queer homelessness, quality health care for trans people, especially in the, well, not especially, but we have a, a massive um, crisis of health care for trans people in the UK right now. And so the short answer that I guess is that like, while my politics, well, my identity as like, in, in terms of my, my personal life is certainly gay, like I'm romantically and sexually gay, I would say that my politics as a socialist comport more easily with the identifier queer. Fascinating. Um, so I want to respond to a little and ask you a follow-up. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. But uh, so on the queer identity politically makes total sense to me. And I'm the same way. And you're you're in good company on this podcast. Among, with We've interviewed quite a few queer radicals, socialists. <laughs> we, we could call this podcast two socialist by guys sometimes. Um, <laughs> dem- you might want to consider Democratic that. Socialists. Yeah. <laughs> would we get more listeners or would we get banned from Spotify? I don't know. Um, uh, okay. But I have a question about the identity stuff and like, it's, you're actually, I think helping to put in context a question that I always have. And we've talked about a lot on the show and I like still don't really know what to do with this, but it's like, we've talked a ton about straight identified people who 
are sexually fluid or having sex mm. with men or but are identifying as straight and like a question we often ask is like are are they straight is identity what you the identity you choose or like does because many bi people would say like well bi means the openness to s- attractions or sex sex with more than one gender and so that falls under that umbrella so that could be bi but if but they're not choosing that identity and why not? And and then we haven't talked as much, although we are a lot this season. And my co-host, Alex, is sort of in your boat. Like he was gay identified. And I also interviewed a guy, Court Vox, a couple episodes ago, gay identified for his whole life and doesn't want to lose that identity, but also has had some sexual fluidity and also uses the word queer and actually identified as pansexual and gay. So there's like this some amount of sort of fluidity within the gay identity. Mm -hmm. So I guess like, I don't know what my question is even, but it's like, I grew up thinking gay was much more rigid than I'm Mm. learning it actually is. And I guess the same with the word straight, but it's all really about how these words are used in context in, in our cultures So, so I don't, is it, is it a semantic issue that doesn't matter or what do we do with uh, this? Is it helping us or is it, is there a way to unify the communities? Yeah, I think that that's, I've asked like 10 questions. (laughs) I know. So I'll just give you like a couple of answers. Figure out what's going on (laughs) in my head, please. I'll just say some things and then you can decide (laughs) to include them or not. Okay, great. I think that. It does matter. I think semantics do matter. And I and if they are helpful. So, you know, like there's this idea of like strategic essentialism, like, you know, like you need to have um, in order to fight for things like in the past to fight for civil rights, you need to have a group identity to campaign. Like we're talking about like, like electoral politics, right? Like you need to be able to go to your elected representatives and say this particular group is being marginalized or underrepresented or, you know, suffering from the effects of like decisions made in government, et cetera, et cetera. However, I think that that's only useful up to a point. And then these terms tend to divide. And this is sort of one of the problems with identity politics today is that some identity politics, not all, and I think that there would be other people who would disagree with me and, and I would be quite willing to um, to probably end up agreeing with them. I'm easily persuaded. <laughs> <laughs> but the point that I was going to make was that identity politics can be quite neoliberal in the sense that it's about like, well, like I gave the example of marriage, right? Like marriage was primarily about like, well, securing property rights and, you know, and it was about assimilation to a degree. I mean, and and partially that was really useful because, you know, like in the HIV and AIDS crisis, like if some, if your partner was dying, you couldn't visit them in hospital. If they died, you could lose your house. You could lose all your belongings. Like you wouldn't be able to go to the funeral, blah, blah, blah. Those are, those are really important things to, to, to campaign on behalf of. But what ends up happening is that if you only have a politics of identity, then it becomes like, um, there's a theorist, her name is Nancy Fraser, and she talks about uh, I think it's transformative politics versus affirmative politics. So affirmative politics would be upholding the systems that already exist and that account for or facilitate the oppression of large groups of people all over the world. And then there's transformative justice, which would be 
um, dismantling those structures, right? So in the case of marriage, instead of advocating to have the right to get married, we dismantle the institution of marriage and anybody can enter into a civil partnership with a best friend, with two people, with uh, their brother or whatever, you know, like, like, so that you can um, have the same sort of validation of, of relationship with, in, in whatever case. Mm-hmm. So I think that it can be divisive. The problem is, is that, and then on top of that, in, in regards to the other question that you were asking about the, the language, I think that it's cultural and it's historical. So like, if somebody said to you now, like, I'm a homosexual, it sounds strange, right? Because we've moved on to a point where like homosexual has connotations of medicalization and um, mental illness, etc. So people say gay, right? Whereas, you know, I think that now we're in a transition period where people are moving away from that term. And then, and that's just within the West or Anglo-America, really. And if you think about it in terms of like other places throughout the world, in the global South, in the East, wherever, there are different sexual identities that are, that we don't have necessarily, they, they don't have the same names, right? Like, so for instance, two spirit, as opposed to, um, as opposed to saying trans or gay, mm-hmm. right? So there's a really good example of a, um, a poet and a scholar in Canada named Joshua Whitehead. And they were nominated for a poetry prize. And I, I may be messing up the story, but it, it was some sort of literary prize. And basically it was for trans literature and Joshua Whitehead said, I'm not trans, I'm two-spirit, right? I'm two-spirit queer indigenous. So as much as I'm honored and like solidarity with my trans brothers and sisters, I cannot accept this award, right? So language does matter. The labels mm. we, we use do matter. And sometimes they matter because we need to build coalitions and sometimes they matter because we need to disrupt the system. Hmm. Interesting. Well, and as we'll discuss in a few minutes, like, those words, the meaning and the use can change over time quite quickly sometimes, like mm-hmm. not just within our lifetimes, but for bisexual within the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, and so so what the identities mean now may not be what they mean soon, yeah. or there may exactly. be new, wor- new words that better explain what's going on as things shift. Precisely. Let's get into your work a little, but before we get into the actual paper you published, tell us a little like, what does corpus-based critical discourse analysis mean? <laughs> uh, is this the next critical race theory? Are we going to get uh, <laughs> we're going to get banned from school? Um, and and how did you get into this research? So you're a PhD student, like, why did you transition to doing this work? Mm-hmm. What's interesting mm-hmm. to you about it? So. Um, corpus-based critical discourse analysis is a combination of two um, disciplines within linguistics. So critical discourse analysis is looking at um, discourse, right? So just ways of thinking and talking about the social world, right? Um, and it is critical in the sense that it would look at a, a newspaper article, for instance, that would say something like, youths have been shot like over the weekend or whatever. And like what is missing from that sentence is that the police shot them. Right. Mm -hmm. Or, um, you know, like, like things that are built into our, our, our um, grammar, like, like she was raped, right? Like the subject of the rapist is actually removed from the sentence. Right. So Mm -hmm. critical discourse looks at grammar and how 
grammar and discourse kind of shapes the way we perceive the world. And it's critical in the sense that it comes from a, a Marxist background where people are looking at injustice and how language functions mm-hmm. to perpetuate injustices. But one of the critiques of critical discourse analysis is that it can very easily um, be kind of like cherry picking examples. So critics would say, like, you know, like (laughs) critical discourse analysis, just look through the newspaper and we're like, that's racist. That's misogynist. (laughs) 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 Which isn't really rigorous linguistic analysis. Anyway, so what corpus linguistics does is it takes large amounts of data so like my, in my PhD, I have like 23 million words, right? And you have a um, various computer programs that look at language, prog- uh, language patterns. Um, and if language patterns are consistent across a sustained period of time, then you can make a kind of scientific argument. I put that in the scare quotes, but you can make a, you can make an argument based on statistics that something is, that it's not being cherry picked, that there's quantitative evidence to back it up. Right. So Mm -hmm. like my supervisor did really interesting work on representations of Islam in the British press. And like what he found was that Paul Baker is his name. And and what he found is that um, Islamic tends to, and he did this work with Tony McHenry and uh, uh, Costas Gabrielatos, I should say their names. Um, they found that like Islamic always goes with the word, not always, but a majority of the time goes with a word like terrorist, right? But it never goes with a word like school or, <laughs> you know, um, scholar or something. So like, if you always mm-hmm. hear the word Islamic with terrorist, then it kind of primes in your mind that, that Islam and anything that is is Islamic is associated with terrorism, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's a useful way of deconstructing the news and and and, crit- and critiquing um, how things are represented. So I wanted to look at how queer identities, so lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, um, intersex people, have been represented in the British press over a sustained period of time. So I'm looking at um, sixty years. Initially, I wanted to look at like 100 years and I wanted to look at lots of different papers. But my, my supervisor was like, that's crazy. You'll never finish. So <laughs> I'm just looking at the, the Times uh, in London, or the Times of London, mm-hmm. and, cons- and looking from the years 1957 to the year 2017. 1957, because that's when um, there was a report published called the Wolfenden Report, which recommended the decriminalization of um, sex between men. Uh, over the age of 21, consensual sex over the age of 21 in private. So there's a lot of caveats there, but then, and up to 2017, and that's just arbitrary because that's just when I started it. <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, well, that we'll see what happens after 2017. A yeah. lot is changing. But um, so I, I was going to ask you why you chose, because I've only read this one paper on bisexual mm-hmm. oysters is the title, mm-hmm. but I was going to ask why you chose to study bisexual as opposed to gay, lesbian, trans, are are mm. you doing this that this similar studies with those other terms as yes. well? Okay, yes. so that yeah. that answers that question. <laughs> I'm looking at everything. I'm, I I cast a really wide net, and so if you and the thing is that if you go back to the 50s and 60s, words like bisexual, I mean, gay obviously wasn't used. Gay just meant happy. It was homosexual. Right. Um, Bisexual, we'll talk about it in a minute. Um, Lesbian has maintained its meaning throughout the 60 years. 
transgender did not exist. You know, queer existed, but was used in lots of different ways. And so it's um, been really interesting finding out not just how um, queer people are represented, but the different identifiers that have been used over the years, right? And this ties back to what we were saying at the beginning that, you know, language changes and as language changes, so does identity. Right. It's kind of interesting that some of that, like lesbian has been more stable and, Mm. but, and gay and bisexual have changed and trans didn't even exist and other words were used for, it's interesting how it's all moving at different, in different ways. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they had transvestite and transsexual, um, but there's a lot of people that I think could have been trans and were not represented as such in the newspaper because there just wasn't a word for it. Right. Yeah. Actually, can I just ask, I'm curious, like, were those words that were used like now they are very derogatory. Like I wouldn't, you know, Mm. obviously use the word trans, like, was it not a derogatory term then? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that transgender was encouraged by the trans community as opposed to transvestite and trans and transsexual. Although I think that there are trans people that still use the term uh, transsexual. And I think as well that, um, you know, there's something interesting happening in the 50s and 60s where there, so the Wolfenden report that I was telling you about, what they, they were arguing for, to decriminalize sex between men. And one of their um, ultimate goals of doing so was that they would be able to find a cure Right. They were like, if we can decriminalize it, treat it like a health issue, we'll find a cure. And one of the possible cures that they uh, proposed was um, what we would now call gender affirming surgery. So like sex change surgery that they actually thought, you know, what we'll do with all of these gay men and with these women is that we'll just give them sex assignment surgery or gender assignment surgery. And so there's a really different way of thinking about it, whereas now the UK Mm -hmm. is extremely transphobic and you know and yet you go back to the 50s and it was seen as like almost uh i mean it never came to pass but it was seen as a possibility they were like well maybe we can just give everybody gender assignment surgery on the nhs on the national health service right wow this episode of two bye guys is sponsored by vino vest Fine wine is the best kept secret in investing, but VinoVest is changing that. VinoVest is democratizing fine wine investing, providing investors with unparalleled access, liquidity, and transparency. I just signed up for VinoVest a couple weeks ago. I let VinoVest manage my account for me for now because I want to learn, although there is an option to pick your own individual wines and invest that way. But I let them do it. Actually, within a few days of signing up, I got a call from someone at VinoVest who went over wine investing with me. He explained the different wine regions of the world and where there's more stability in prices, where there's more volatility. Wine investing also has inflation resistance. Wine prices outpace inflation. And also wine prices are recession resistant. In the first quarter of 2020, the Dow Jones and S&P 500 each fell more than 22%. But fine wine only saw a drop of 1.4% during that recession. I'm enjoying VinoVest so far. I'm learning a lot. If you are interested in fine wine investing, go to zen.ai slash 2 guys to receive two months of fee-free investing. 
That's zen, Z-E-N, dot A-I, slash two buy guys for two months of fee-free investing with VinoVest. Let's get into this paper because it's really fascinating, especially for our bisexual audience. But before, before we talk about the actual meaning of the word bisexual and how it's changed, like, tell us a little about the method of how you did this research, like, what did you actually look at? How did you pull it out? Mm. Just so we have some context as we get into it. So basically what I did was, and this was sort of like a, like a lucky mistake, which happens a lot with research, right? Which is that I was collecting um, uh, articles from, it's called the Times Digital Archive. They have all of their um, uh, issues Um, digitized back to like 1785 or something like this. So I was looking at what kinds of words were used to represent what we would now consider the LGBTQI um, population. And bisexual I had on the list, but when it came up in the 50s and 60s, first of all, there was only like 15 or 16 occurrences. And one of the theories behind the work is that if you talk about something in a certain way, over a sustained period of time, it comes to be perceived as such, right? Mm-hmm. But if there's only 15 occurrences of something over 10 years, then you can't really make that argument. <laughs> so it fell down and I was like, oh no. And I talked to my supervisor and I was like, what do I do? And we were looking at them and and we quickly realized most of them, I think it was like 11 out of 16 of them didn't, recognize, didn't uh, reference sexual identity at all. They right. referenced other things. And so... Um, this was how I got, I started doing this work specifically on bisexual. But so what, what I did was I found every article um, or searched for every article that mentioned the word bisexual in it between 1957 and 2017. And then I broke them into um, different historical periods to make the analysis a little bit easier. So between 57 and 67, um, those are the 10 years before um, sex between men is decriminalized. Um, 68 to 78, because that's sort of the era of like the sexual revolution, the gay, the lesbian and gay liberation movement, um, 79 and 90, which is very important in the UK, because that's the premiership of Margaret Thatcher, who brought in sweeping neoliberal reforms and destroyed the post-war consensus, you know, um, and, but at the same time, this was also the rise of the HIV and AIDS epidemic. From 91 to 2003, um, 2003, because that's when they repealed Section 28. Section 28 was um, a bylaw. I mean, it was a local law. It was for for local councils, which prohibited the teaching of homosexuality in schools as a, quote, pretended family relationship. So it was illegal to mention any kind of sexual identities or or non-heterosexual identities in school up until 2003 which is really, really late. So like a lot of wow. people that grew up and are our age now, you know, grew mm-hmm. up never being able to discuss it. I mean, not that I, I don't think we discussed sexual identity in, in Canada either, but I don't think there was any laws against it. Um, and then uh, 2004 to 2017, because that's when you have the Gender Recognition Act, the Civil Partnership Act, Same-Sex Marriage Act, et cetera, et cetera. So I broke the data into each of these time periods and then looked at how the word bisexual developed over, over those decades. Cool. And one last framing question. In in the US, I think of the Times as the New York Times. This is mm. kind of a left little bit left of center, but you know, highly regarded. 
by some mm-hmm. pa- paper, but this is the time, this is a different times. How is mm-hmm. the times in the UK sort of viewed and where does it fall politically and why did you choose that paper? I mean, to me, it's grossly right wing, but, <laughs> but, but <some> <laughs> to me, the New York just... Times is a little grossly right wing sometimes. <laughs> so the reason why I chose the Times, there's a couple of like practically, it's because it's all digitized online, so it was just really easy to access, right? Because I wanted to, but sorry, and the second reason is that because I initially wanted to look at lots of different papers and for your American audience or for Amer- audiences outside of the UK, we have broadsheets, which are like, like news, like proper news. And then there's tabloids, which are of course tabloids, right? So like most people are familiar with the daily mail, like that would be mm-hmm. an example of the, of uh, a British tabloid. And I wanted to look at all of them, but because it was going to be, it was far too much um, uh, to analyze. So I decided that I would focus on one and I wanted to find something that was like, quote, centrist. But the thing is that there are no centrist papers in Britain. (laughs) And our media ecology is extremely skewed to the right. Like, even The Guardian is like, you know, centrist at best, you know, I think Mm -hmm. it used to be more left wing, but it certainly isn't now. Um, And so, but The Times has a place within sort of the history and scope of um, British media or British, the, the British press, which is that it's sort of considered like an, the establish, the voice of the establishment, right? So I thought that it would be interesting to look at the ways in which sexual identity was uh, represented as kind of like, like this is the, these are established norms. They don't, they didn't cover a lot of scandals. They didn't cover a lot of like shocking stories. Like when they talked about sexual identity it tended to be kind of um, tempered, do you know what I mean? So I thought that it would be mm-hmm. an interesting mm-hmm. way of, of looking at the language. Cool. Awesome. Okay, so let's go through. So you mentioned those sort of five time periods that you broke the research down into. So let's go through them and talk about how bisexual was used in each of them, because um, it's fascinating. Uh, so slow, let's start with the 1957 to 67 era Great. when there were you you talked a little there were only 16 occurrences of the word bisexual so already that's interesting that it was i mean in the other in the later time periods you have thousands and thousands of uses so mm-hmm. that alone is interesting that it was barely used but but talk about that and how was it used in those 16 occurrences <laughs> so 11 of those occurrences so five of them did more or less um, reference uh, somebody who I, I think that, that it would translate to today, right? That we would still understand um, the use of bisexual today. Um, although interestingly, and we'll come back to this, most of them are in um, fiction, right? So they're not talking about real bisexual people. They're talking about characters. So that's, <laughs> that's something. Um, but we'll come back to that because there's a lot more of that that is consistent throughout all of um, the decades in question. Mm. The 11 occurrences which do not reference sexual identity were bisexual organisms. So it basically, they, they didn't have sexual differentiation. Um, the other one was bisexual situations. So bisexual situations were basically just situ- situations where there were men and women present. Um, and l- there was a few unique uses, which are really, really interesting. So I'll, I'll read like one or two, just as an example, because they're quite funny. So in an article published in 1957, it's called The, um, the Story of the o- Oyster. And it was published on 
August 31st, and it says, Next week, that most glittering debutante of the gastronomical season, the oyster, makes her, or should it be his, annual debut. Either his or her is correct, for the British oyster is bisexual. American oysters, by the way, are males or females during their entire lifetime. So so here you see first <laughs> British exceptionalism, right? They're always yeah. better. <laughs> and they're always looking down on Americans, basically everyone else. But um, what's really interesting here is that they're talking about like uh, organisms, right? So they talk about bisexual tube worms. They talk about bisexual plants, you know. The second example that I gave you was, of course, um, bisexual situations. So they talk about like mm-hmm. things like um, sports, like fencing, canoeing, dancing as being bisexual. There was a, a, a massive um, scandal or, or moral panic about having women in the priesthood. And they were like, we can't have a bisexual priesthood, you know, which is such a weird way of talking uh-huh. about it. <laughs> right? <laughs> anyway, and then finally... There were a couple of um, examples that were didn't fit into any particular category, and there's one that there's a couple that I think are really interesting because basically, I think that most of them were talking about bisexuality as almost like a a, um, a synonym of hermaphrodite, right? Right. So, I was going to ask if that's the word that kind of replaced this usage for the oysters or, or organisms. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, essentially. And so they're talking about um, Lord Byron who was a writer, a poet, and a very famous, and they talk about his bisexual nature resulted in his homosexuality. And it took me a minute to think about it, but I was like, ah, they mean like his soul is like hermaphroditic, right? So like he is half woman, half man. So like the part of him that is in love with men is the female part and vice Mm -hmm. versa, right? So it's this really strange use of bisexual. Mm -hmm. They talk about... um, bisexual fragrances they talk about bisexual fragrances a lot which is like unisex right Mm. so that not only was it hermaphroditic but it also meant unisex in the 70s Mm -hmm. um i'll get to this but they talk a lot about bisexual fashion (laughs) interesting (laughs) and bisexual instruments as well which is quite funny the conch the flute and the drum are apparently bisexual instruments so you're thinking of picking up an instrument Because be men one. or women could play the, those instruments? <laughs> I suppose so. Oh. oh, you have a visitor. I have a visitor. <laughs> I have a dog. Oh, hold on. Let me just put her up here. And she'll... So she only speaks Portuguese. Oh. <laughs> Cute. Thank you. Sorry, I guess you'll have to edit that part out. <laughs> Leave it all in. So from the 1960s into the 1970s, there's a big change. We're we're getting into this era number two now? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So from 1968 to 1978, you have a big increase in the amount of uses of the term bisexual, which actually comport with our contemporary definition. So bisexual is being attracted to um, people who identify as male or people who identify as female, right? So it goes from 31% in the 50s to 66% in the 70s. So it's a big jump, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of um, talk about, about bisexual people. And again, um, it's mostly fiction, mm. right? 
what I found was that most of the examples that I was finding of the use of bisexual was in the reviews section. And so when I looked at the where it was coming from, I was like, that's strange. And it's it's bisexual characters in film, television, and theater. Interesting. Right? So there was something exotic about a bisexual character, but bisexual people didn't exist in real life, or they didn't talk about them in real life in the times. Right. I mean, yeah. What do you think that does? Like, how do you think that contributes to the culture of like, when it's mostly talked about as fictional characters, but not real life? Or what does that reflect? I think that it's that people are, I think that we live in in the West specifically, we live in a one of like the greatest paradigms that sort of structures most of, of our lives is binaries, right? You know, everything from like emotional binaries, like happy, sad, to sexual binaries, like gay, straight, you know, and people are very uncomfortable with things that don't fit within that, right? Mm-hmm. But it's, it's. I think that, you know, I mean, you're a writer, like it might, it's sort of fun to play with like exotic characters, unexpected situations, right? So I think mm-hmm. that there was something, and there was a lot of like pulp fiction at the time, right? That was like, would feature like bisexual detectives and like <laughs> bisexual mysteries, things like this, which is really interesting. Um, but there's still a lot of bisexual fashion. So you have um, bisexual garments, bisexual hats, lots of bisexual clothing. So that that again, essentially, we would call today unisex or exactly. something like that. Mm-hmm. Exactly, right? Interesting. And so this this raises a really interesting point about kind of like what you would consider like historical translation. Like how do you take... When, when you read historical fiction or, or historical um, newspapers, how is it that you understand terms that maybe are unfamiliar to you? And, and we do that by translating them, right? So like it's a bisexual fragrance is very easy for us to understand as like a unisex fragrance, right? Mm-hmm. Right. But there's a lot of examples um, that would not be able to translate today. So, for instance, they talk about bisexual parenting. What is that? Um, And bisexual parenting, yeah, right, is is usually, um, the example that I found was a mother who, and the quote is, by filling the male role in the household as well as her own, provides the children with a bisexual model for their behavior. Hmm. So, in other words... This is complete. I don't know how you would like. I mean, first of all, it assumes that a single mother cannot raise a child on her own without a father figure, right? <laughs> it's <laughs> a very some... gendered way of looking at parenting in the first place, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort right? of like, like non-gender conforming parenting might be <laughs> how I describe it. I guess so, right? Like they sort of say like she had to be, and you you hear people say this like, oh, they had to be both mother and father, but like there's this. Um, sort of like these ideological concepts that we have about like motherhood and fatherhood mm-hmm. and what that means, right? And I think that it would be very difficult to translate that to now. Um, right. Similarly, they talk, they use bisexual a lot for androgyny. So mm-hmm. they talk about um, uh, God as being bisexual, which is really interesting. Um, the quote is that. about... I love that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I love it too. I hope God is bisexual, right? Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> so they talk about um, a debate uh, wherein uh, it was argued that the bisexuality of God had been obscured by a misinterpretation of Genesis. God made man and woman in his, and then it puts in uh, parentheses or brackets, its 
question mark. So it changes it to it, uh, its image, but the whole image exists only in combination of the two. So they're saying that like the Judeo-Christian God was hermaphroditic. Right. And that, so like, and so we misunderstand the story of Genesis. And created man and woman in their own image Mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Interesting. And then just two more examples of androgyny from the 70s. They have one about um, bisexual space stations. So they talk about, um, (laughs) (laughs) which again, like maybe you want to visit one. I don't know. Um, I do now. (laughs) (laughs) So they talk about, they say, American space engineers have therefore drawn up preliminary plans for so-called androgynous. And then they put bisexual in parentheses. So androgynous or bisexual system that is neither male nor female in design, right? So they're saying that it's uh, hermaphroditic. And there's a few more examples of this. Um, Wait, but the the space station is because like when they dock and stuff or whatever, they call those things male and female, which mm -hmm. one fits into the other. And it is quite a phallic symbol. I mean, I saw gravity and the dock (laughs) kind of goes into the thing. (laughs) Okay, so that's what that means? Yeah, so apparently they found an androgynous way of do- or a bisexual okay. way of docking. You've given me a new life goal, which is to somehow like connect with Elon Musk and make a bu- another bisexual <laughs> space station. <laughs> we'll fill it with bisexual people. All the ports can go either way. Okay. Yeah, exactly. We'll just take his money. <laughs> yeah. We'll leave him out of it. Um, but yeah, so what's really interesting is that there's there's this use of but what's important about these examples is the way that they're like disambiguating androgynous with bisexual. So like bisexual yeah. would be the more common term. And when they use androgynous, it's like a new term. And so then they have to put bisexual in brackets so that the average reader understands it. Interesting. So there's still like, we're almost like the seventies is kind of like this um, halfway point between bisexual having many uses, primarily androgyny, hermaphrodite, hermaphroditism, um, that's hard to pronounce. It's one of those words you only ever read, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then and then moving on to the 80s, when you finally do, you have 92% of all usages of bisexual reference bisexual bisexuality as a sexual identity. Okay. So we've gone from in the 60s, it's around 30%. In the mm-hmm. 70s, it's around 66%, around two thirds. And mm-hmm. then by the 80s, 92% it's being used similarly to how it's used today. Yeah. So yeah. it's, I mean, that's, I knew that, you know, it didn't always mean this, but that's interesting to see exactly how it rose, you know, mm-hmm. through those decades. That's all we've got for you with Mark Wilkinson today. Thank you for listening to part one of this interview. Is this the perfect episode to break into two parts? Or did I just run out of time editing this week? Maybe it's a little from column A and column B, as it usually is for bisexual people. Stay tuned soon for part two, where we will learn more about the use of the word bisexual in the 80s, 90s, and all the way up until 2017. It's all really fascinating, and we're going to learn a lot more about how much more the word was used and how it really rose to prominence in the 80s during the HIV and AIDS epidemic. We'll talk all about that and how it's used today and what all of this means. Will I release part two next week? Will it be in two weeks? They say consistency is key in podcasting, but, you know, sometimes we've got to be a little unpredictable, like a messy bisexual. So I'm keeping you all on your toes. So stay tuned whenever I decide to publish part two. 
because it's really interesting. I love this chat. Thank you, Mark Wilkinson. We'll hear more from him soon. And thank you for listening to Two Bye Guys. Two Bye Guys is edited and produced by me, Rob Cohen, and it was created by me and Alex Boyd. Our music is by Ross Mincer. Our logo art is by Caitlin Weinman. And we are supported by the Gotham, formerly IFP. Thanks for listening to Two Bye Guys.